The Tree of Appomattox, A Story of the Civil War's Close, by Joseph A. Altscheller, the eighth and final volume of the Civil War series. Produced by Civil War Audio at civilwar.builtwithflash.com. Read by John Bruzes. You can find us on Facebook at Civil War Audio Podcast. Chapter 17, Appomattox. The morning after Lee's retreat, the Winchester Regiment rode into Petersburg and looked curiously at the smoldering fires and what was left of the town. They had been before it so long, it seemed almost incredible to Dick Mason that they were in it now. But the southern leader and his army were not yet taken. They were gone, and they still existed as a fighting power. We have Petersburg at last, he said, but it's only a scorched and empty shell. We've more than that, said Warner. What do you mean? We've Richmond, too. The capital of the Confederacy, inviolate for four years, has fallen, and our troops have entered it. Jefferson Davis, his government and its garrison have fled, burning the army buildings and stores as they went. A part of the city was burned also, but our troops helped to put out the fires and save the rest. Dick, do you realize it? Do you understand that we have captured the city, over which we have fought for four years, and which has cost more than a half a million lives? Dick was silent, because he had no answer to make. Neither he, nor Warner, nor Pennington could yet comprehend it fully. They had talked often of the end of the war. They had looked forward to the great event. They had hoped for the taking of Richmond. But now that it was taken, it scarcely seemed real. "'Tell it over, George,' he said. "'Was it Richmond you were speaking of? "'And did you say that it was taken?' "'Yes, Dick, and it's the truth. "'Of course, it doesn't look like it to you or to me or to Frank, "'but it's a fact. "'Today or tomorrow, we may go there and see it with our own eyes.' And then, if we don't believe the sight, we can read an account of it in the newspapers. It was a process of saturation, but in the next hour or two, they believed it and understood it fully. On the following day, they rode into the desolate and partly burned capital, now garrisoned heavily by the north, and looked with curiosity at the little city for which such torrents of blood had been shed. But... As at Winchester and Petersburg, they gazed upon blind doors and windows. Nor did they expect anything else. It was only natural, and they refrained carefully from any outward show of exultation. Richmond was to hold them only a few hours, as Grant and Sheridan continued hot on the trail of Lee. They knew that he was marching along the Appomattox, intending to concentrate at Amelia Courthouse, and they were resolved that he should not escape. Sheridan's cavalry, with the Winchester Regiment in the van, advanced swiftly and began to press hard upon the retreating army. The firing was almost continuous. Many prisoners and five guns were taken, but at the crossing of a creek near nightfall, the men in gray, still resolute, turned and beat off their assailants for the time. The pursuit was resumed before the next daylight, and both Grant and Sheridan pressed it with the utmost severity. In the next few days, Dick felt both pity and sympathy for the little army that was defending itself so valiantly 
against extermination or capture. It was almost like the chase of a fox now, and the hounds were always growing in number and power. The northern cavalry spread out and formed a great net. The southern communications were cut off, their scouts were taken, and all the provision trains intended for Lee were captured. The prisoners reported that the southern army was starving, and the condition of their own bodies proved the truth of their words. As Dick looked upon these ragged and famished men, his feeling of pity increased, and he sincerely hoped that the hour of Lee's surrender would be hastened. During these days, and most of the nights too, Dick lived in the saddle. Once more, he and his comrades were clothed in the Virginia mud, and all the time the Winchester Regiment brought in prisoners or wagons. They knew now that Lee was seeking to turn toward the south and effect a junction with Johnson in North Carolina. But Dick, his thoughts being his own, did not see how it was possible. When the Confederacy began to fall, it fell fast. It was only after they passed through Richmond that he saw how frail the structure had become and how its supporting timbers had been shot away. It was great cause of wonder to him that Lee should still be able to hold out and to fight off cavalry raids, as he was doing. And the Army of Northern Virginia, although but a fragment, was dangerous. In these, its last hours, reduced almost to starvation and pitiful in numbers, it fought with a courage and tenacity worthy of its greatest days. It gave to Lee a devotion that would have melted a heart of stone. Whenever he commanded, it turned fiercely upon its remorseless pursuers and compelled them to give ground for a while. But when it sought to march on again, the cavalry of Sheridan and the infantry of Grant followed closely once more, continually cutting off the fringe of the dwindling army. Dick saw Lee himself on a hill near Sailor's Creek as Sheridan pressed forward against him. The gray leader had turned. The troops of Ewell and Anderson were gathered at the edge of a forest, and other infantry masses stood near. Lee, on Traveler, sat just in front of them and was surveying the enemy through his glasses. Dick used his own glasses, and he looked long and with the utmost intense curiosity mingled with admiration at the Lion of the South, whom they were about to bring to the ground. The sun was just setting, and Lee was defined sharply against the red blaze. Dick saw his features, his gray hair, and he could imagine the defiant blaze of his eyes. It was an unforgettable picture, the one drawn there by circumstances at the closing of an era. Then he took notice of a figure, also on horseback, not far behind Lee, a youthful figure, the face thin and worn, none other than his cousin, Harry Kenton. Dick's heart took a glad leap. Harry still rode with his chief, and Dick's belief that he would survive the war was almost justified. Then followed a scattering fire to which sunset and following darkness put an end, and once more the southern leader retreated with Sheridan and his cavalry forever at his heels, giving him no rest, keeping food from reaching him, and capturing more of his men. The wounded lion turned again, and, in a fierce attack, drove back Sheridan and his men. But, when the battle closed, and Lee resumed his march, 
Sheridan was at his heels as before, seeking to pull him down and refusing to be driven off. Grant also dispatched Custer in a cavalry raid far around Lee, and the daring young leader not only seized the last wagon train that could possibly reach the Confederate commander, but also captured 25 of his guns that had been sent on ahead. Dick knew now that the end, protracted as it had been by desperate courage, was almost at hand, and that not even a miracle could prevent it. The column with which he rode was almost continually in sight of the Army of Northern Virginia, and the field guns never ceased to pour shot and shell upon it. The sight was tragic to the last degree, as the worn men in gray retreated sullenly along the muddy roads, in rags, blackened with mire, stained with wounds, their horses falling dead of exhaustion, while the pursuing artillery cut down their ranks. Then the news of Custer's exploit came to Grant and Sheridan, and the circle of steel, now complete, closed in on the doomed army. It was the 7th of April when the Winchester men rested their weary horses, not far from the headquarters of General Grant, and also gave their own aching bones and muscles a chance to recover their strength. Dick, after his food and coffee, watched the general who was walking back and forth before his tent. "'He looks expectant,' said Dick. "'He has the right to look so,' said Warner. "'We may have news of earth-shaking importance.' "'What do you mean?' "'I know that he sent a messenger to Lee this morning, "'asking him to surrender in order to stop the further effusion of blood. "'I wish Lee would accept. The end is inevitable.' Remember, they don't see it with our eyes. I know it, George, but the war ought to stop. The Confederacy is gone forever. We shall see what we shall see. They didn't see, but they heard, which was the same thing. To the polite request of Grant, Lee sent the polite reply that his means of resistance were not yet exhausted, and the Union leader took another hitch in the steel girdle. The second morning afterward, Lee made a desperate effort to break through at Appomattox Courthouse, but crushing numbers drove him back, and when the short, fierce combat ceased, the Army of Northern Virginia had fired its last shot. The Winchester men had borne a gallant part in the struggle, and presently, when the smoke cleared away, Dick uttered a shout. "'What is it?' exclaimed Colonel Winchester." "'A white flag! A white flag!' cried Dick in excitement. "'See it waving over the southern lines?' "'Yes, I see it!' shouted the Colonel, Warner, and Pennington all together. Then they stood breathless, and Dick uttered the words, "'The end!' "'Yes,' said Colonel Winchester, more to himself than the others. "'The end! The end at last!' Thousands now beheld the flag, and, after the first shouts and cheers, a deep, intense silence followed. The soldiers felt the immensity of the event, but as at the taking of Richmond, they could not comprehend it all at once. It yet seemed incredible that the enemy, who for four terrible years had held them at bay, was about to lay down his arms. But it was true. The messenger, bearing the flag, was now coming toward the Union lines. The herald was received within the northern ranks, bearing a request that hostilities be suspended in order that the commanders might have time to talk over terms of surrender. And, at the same time, General Grant, 
who was seven or eight miles from Appomattox Courthouse in a pine wood, received a note of a similar tenor, the nature of which he disclosed to his staff amid much cheering. The Union chief at once wrote to General Lee, Your note of this date is but at this moment, 11.50 a.m., received, in consequence of my having passed from the Richmond and Lynchburg Road to the Farmville and Lynchburg Road. I am, at this writing, about four miles west of Walker's Church, and will push forward to the front for the purpose of meeting you. Notice sent to me on this road, where you wish the interview to take place, will meet me. It was a characteristic and modest letter, and yet the heart under the plain blue blouse must have beat with elation at the knowledge that he had brought what was then the greatest war of modern times to a successful conclusion. The dispatch was given to Colonel Babcock of his staff, who was instructed to ride in haste to Lee and arrange the interview. The general and his staff followed, but missing the way, narrowly escaped capture by Confederate troops, who did not yet know of the proposal to suspend hostilities. But they at last reached Sheridan, about a half-mile west of Appomattox Courthouse. Dick and his comrades, meanwhile, spent a momentous morning. It would have been impossible for him afterward to have described his own feelings. They were such an extraordinary compound of relief, elation, pity, and sympathy. The two armies faced each other, and for the first time, in absolute peace. The men in blue were already slipping food and tobacco to their brethren in gray, whom they had fought so long and so hard, and at many points along the lines they were talking freely with one another. The officers made no effort to restrain them, all alike feeling sure that the bayonets would now be rusting. The Winchester men were dismounted, their horses being tethered in a grove, and Dick, with the Colonel, Warner, and Pennington, were at the front, eagerly watching the ragged little army that faced them. He saw soon a small band of soldiers, at the head of whom stood two elderly men in patched but neat uniforms, their figures very erect, and their faces bearing no trace of depression. Close by them were two tall youths whom Dick recognized at once as St. Clair and Langdon. He waved his hand to them repeatedly, and at last caught the eye of St. Clair, who at once waved back, and then called Langdon's attention. Langdon not only waved also, but walked forward as if to meet him, bringing St. Clair with him, and Dick, responding at once, advanced with Warner and Pennington. They shook hands under the branches of an old oak, and were unaffectedly glad to see one another, although the three youths in blue felt awkwardness at first, being on the triumphant side, and fearing lest some act or word of theirs might betray exultation over a conquered foe. But St. Clair, precise, smiling, and trim in his attire, put them at ease. General Lee will be here presently, he said, and you, as well as we, know that the war is over. You are the victors, and our cause is lost. But you have lost with honor, said Dick, won by his manner. The odds were greatly against you. It's wonderful to me that you were able to fight so long and with so much success. It was a matter of mathematics, Captain St. Clair, said Warner. The numbers, the big guns, and the resources were on our side. If we held on, we were bound to win, as anyone could demonstrate. 
It's certainly no fault of yours to have been defeated by mathematics, a science that governs the world. St. Clair and Langdon smiled, and Langdon said lightly, It would perhaps be more just to say, Mr. Warner, that we have not been beaten, but that we've worn ourselves out fighting. Besides, the spring is here, a lot of us are homesick, and it's time to put in the crops. I think that's a good way to leave it, said Dick. Do you know where my cousin Harry Kenton is? I saw him this morning, replied St. Clair, and I can assure you that he's taken no harm. He's riding ahead of the commander-in-chief, and he should be here soon. A trumpet sounded, and they separated, returning respectively to their own lines. Standing on a low hill, Dick saw Harry Kenton and Dalton dismount, and then stand on one side, as if in expectancy. Dick knew for whom they were waiting, and his own heart beat hard. A great hum and murmur arose, when the gray figure of an elderly man riding the famous war-horse traveler appeared. It was Lee, and in this moment, when his heart must have bled, his bearing was proud and high. He was worn somewhat, and he had lost strength from the great privations and anxieties of the retreat, but he held himself erect. He was clothed in a fine new uniform, and he wore, buckled at his side, a splendid new sword, recently sent to him as a present. Nearby stood a farmhouse belonging to Wilmer McLean, but Grant, not yet having come, the southern commander-in-chief dismounted, and as the air was close and hot, he remained a little while under the shade of an apple tree, the famous apple tree of Appomattox, around which truth and legend have played so much. Dick was fully conscious of everything now, he realized the greatness of the moment, and he would not miss any detail of any movement on the part of the principals. It was nearly three o'clock in the afternoon when Grant and his staff rode up, the Union leader still wearing his plain blue blouse, no sword at his side, his shoulder straps alone signifying his rank. The two generals, who had faced each other with such resolution in that terrible conflict, shook hands, and Dick saw them talking pleasantly, as if they were chance acquaintances who had just met once more. Presently, they went into the McLean house, several of General Grant's staff accompanying him, but Lee taking with him only Colonel Thomas Marshall. Before the day was over, Dick learned all that had occurred inside that unpretentious but celebrated farmhouse. The two great commanders at first did not allude to the Civil War, but spoke of the old war in Mexico where Lee, the elder, had been General Winfield Scott's chief of staff and the head of his engineer corps, with Grant, the younger, as a lieutenant and quartermaster. It never entered the wildest dreams of either that they should lead the armies of a divided nation engaged in mortal combat. Now they had only pleasant recollections of each other, and they talked of the old days, of Contreras, Molino del Rey, and other battles, in the Valley of Mexico. They sat down at a plain table, and then came in the straightforward manner characteristic of both to the great business at hand. Colonel Marshall supplied the paper for the historic documents, now about to be written and signed. General Grant, humane, and never greater or more humane than in the hour of victory, made the terms easy. 
all the officers of the Army of Northern Virginia were to give their parole not to take up arms against the United States until properly exchanged, and the company or regimental commanders were to sign a like parole for their men. The artillery, other arms, and public property were to be turned over to the Union Army, although the officers were permitted to retain their sidearms and their own horses and baggage. Then officers and men alike could go to their homes. It was truly the supreme moment of Grant's greatness, of a humanity and greatness of soul, the value of which to his nation can never be overestimated. Surrenders in Europe at the end of the Civil War had always been followed by confiscations, executions, and a reign of terror for the beaten. Here, the man who had compelled the surrender merely told the defeated to go to their homes. Lee looked at the terms and said, Many of the artillerymen and cavalrymen in our army own their own horses. Will the provisions allowing the officers to retain their horses apply to them also? No, it will not, as it is written, replied Grant. But as I think this will be the last battle of the war, and as I suppose most of the men in the ranks are small farmers, who, without their horses, would find it difficult to put in their crops, the country having been swept of everything movable, and as the United States does not want them, I will instruct the officers, who are to receive the paroles of your troops, to let every man who claims to own a horse or mule take the animal to his home. It will have a pleasant effect, said Lee, and then he wrote a formal letter accepting the capitulations. The two generals, rising, bowed to each other, but as Lee turned away, he said that his men had eaten no food for several days, except parched corn, and he would have to ask that rations and forage for their horses be given to them. Certainly, General, replied Grant, for how many men do you need them? About 25,000, was Lee's reply. Then General Grant requested him to send his own officers to Appomattox Station for the food and forage. Lee thanked him. They bowed to each other again, and the southern leader, who no longer had an army, but who had retained always the love and veneration of the South, left the McLean House. Thus, and in this simple fashion, the small detached fighting elsewhere did not count, did the great civil war in America, which had cost six or seven hundred thousand lives, and the temporary ruin of one section came to an end. Dick saw Lee come out of the house, Mount Traveler, and followed by Colonel Marshall, ride back toward his own men, who had already divined the occurrences in the house. The army saluted him with undivided affection, the troops crowding around him, cheering him, and whenever they had a chance, shaking his hand. The demonstration became so great that Lee was moved deeply and showed it. The water rose in his eyes, and his voice trembled as he said, though with pride. My lads, we have fought through the war together. I have done the best I could for you. My heart is too full to say more. He could not be induced to speak further, although the great demonstration continued, but rode in silence to his headquarters in a wood, where he entered his tent and sat alone, no one ever knowing what his thoughts were in that hour. Twenty-six thousand men who were left of the Army of Northern Virginia surrendered the next day, and the blue and the gray fraternized. The Union soldiers did not wait for the rations ordered by Grant, but gave of their own to the starved men who were so lately their foes. 
Dick and his friends hastened at once to find Harry Kenton and his comrades, and presently they saw them all sitting together on a log, thin and pale, but with no abatement of pride. Harry rose nevertheless and received his cousin joyfully. "'Dick,' he said as their hands met, "'the war is over and over forever, but you and I were never enemies.' "'That's so, Harry,' said Dick Mason, "'and the thing for us to do now is to go back to Kentucky "'and begin life where we left it off.' "'But you don't start this minute,' said Warner. "'There is a small matter of business to be transacted first. "'We know all of you, but just the same, "'we've brought our visiting cards with us.' "'I don't understand,' said Harry. "'We'll show you. "'Frank Pennington, remove that large protuberance "'from your beneath your blouse.' Behold it, a small ham, my friends, and it's for you. That's Frank's card, and here I take from my own blouse the half of a cheese, which I beg you to accept with my compliments. Dick, you rascal, what's that you have under your arm? It's a jar of prime bacon that I've brought along for the party, George. I thought so. We're going to have the pleasure of dining with our friends here. We've heard Captain Kenton that you people haven't eaten anything for a month. It's not that bad, laughed Harry. We had parched corn yesterday. Well, parched corn is none too filling, and we're going to prepare the banquet at once. A certain Sergeant Whitley will arrive presently with a basket of food, such as you rebels haven't tasted since you raided our wagon trains at the Second Manassas. And with him will come one William Shepherd, whom you've met often, Mr. Kenton. Yes, said Harry, we've met often and under varying circumstances, but we're going to be friends now. Will you tell me, Captain St. Clair, said Dick, what has become of the two colonels of your regiment, which I believe you call the Invincibles? St. Clair led them silently to a little wood, and there, sitting on logs, Colonel Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire were bent intently over the chessboard that lay between them. "'Now that the war is over, we'll have a chance to finish our game, eh, Hector?' said Colonel Talbot. "'A just observation, Leonidas. "'It's a difficult task to pursue a game to a perfect conclusion amid the distractions of war. "'But soon I shall checkmate you in the brilliant fashion in which General Lee always snares and destroys his enemy.' "'But General Lee has yielded, Hector.' "'Pshaw, Leonidas. General Lee would never yield to anybody.' He has merely quit. Ahem, said Harry loudly, and as the colonels glanced up, they saw the little group looking down at them. Our friends, the enemy, have come to pay you their respects, said Harry. The two colonels rose and bowed profoundly, and to invite you to a banquet that is now being prepared not far from here, continued Harry. It's very tempting, ham, cheese, and other salads, surrounded by many delicacies. The two colonels looked at each other, and then nodded approval. "'You are to be the personal guests of our army,' said Dick, "'and we act as the proxies of General Grant.' "'I shall always speak most highly of General Grant,' said Colonel Talbot. "'His conduct has been marked by the greatest humanity, "'and is a credit to our common country, "'which has been reunited so suddenly.' "'But reunited with our consent, Leonidas,' said Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire, don't forget that I, for one, am tired of this war, and so is our whole army. It was a perfect waste of life to prolong it, and, with the North re the Union will soon be stronger and more prosperous than ever. 
Well spoken, Hector. Well spoken. It is perhaps better that North and South should remain together. I thought otherwise for four years, but now I seem to have another point of view. Come, lads, we shall dine with these good Yankee boys, and we'll make them drink toasts of their own excellent coffee to the health and safety of our common country. The group returned to a little hollow in which Sergeant Whitley and Shepard had built a fire, and where they were already frying strips of bacon and slices of ham over the coals. Shepard and Harry shook hands. I may as well tell you now, Mr. Kenton, said Shepard, that Miss Henrietta Cardin, whom you met in Richmond, is my sister, and that it was she who hid in the court at the Curtis house and took the map. Then it was I who gave you the blow. It was done in war, said Harry, and I have no right to complain. It was clever, and I hope that I shall be able to give your sister my compliments some day. Now, if you don't mind, I'll take a strip of that wonderful bacon. It is bacon, isn't it? It's been so long since I've seen any that I'm not sure of its identity, but whatever it is, its odor is enticing. Bacon it surely is, Mr. Kenton. Here are three pieces that I broiled myself, and a broad slice of bread for them. Go ahead, there's plenty more. And see this dark brown liquid foaming in this stout tin pot? Smell it. Isn't it wonderful? Well, that's coffee. You've heard of coffee, and maybe you remember it. I do remember tasting it some years ago and finding it good. I'd like to try it again. Yes, thank you. It's fine. Here's another cup, and try the ham also. Harry tried it, not once, but several times. Langdon sat on the ground before the fire, and his delight was unalloyed and unashamed. We have raided a Yankee wagon train again, he said, and the looting is splendid. Arthur, I thought yesterday that I should never eat again. Food and I were such strangers that I believed we should never know each other any more, or if knowing, we could never assimilate. And yet we seemed to get on good terms at once. While they talked, a tall, thin youth of clear, dark complexion, carrying a long bundle under his arm, approached the fire, and Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire welcomed him with joy. "'Julien! Julien de Lenguay! My young relative!' he cried. "'And you are indeed alive! I thought you lost!' "'I'm very much alive, sir,' said young de Lenguay. "'But I'm starved.' "'Then this is the place to come,' said Dick, putting before him food, which he strove to eat slowly.' although the effort at restraint was manifestly great. Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire introduced him to the Union men, and then asked him what the long black bag that he carried was under his arm. That, sir, replied de Langay, smiling pathetically, is my violin. I've no further use for my rifle and sword, but now that peace is coming, I may be able to earn my bread with the fiddle. And so you will. You'll become one of the world's great musicians, and as soon as we've finished with General Grant's hospitality, which will be some time yet, you shall play for us. De Longay looked affectionately at the black bag. You're very good to me, sir, he said, to encourage me at such a time, and if you and the others care for me to play, I'll do my best. Paganini himself could do no more, but for the present we must pay due attention to the hospitality of General Grant. He would not like it, if it should come to his ears that we did not show due appreciation. And since, in the course of events, and in order to prevent the mutual destruction of the sections, 
It became necessary for General Lee to arrange with someone to stop this suicidal war. I am glad the man was General Grant, a leader whose heart does him infinite credit. General Grant is a very great man, and he has never proved it more fully than today, said Dick, who sat near the colonels. His first inclination had been to smile, but he restrained it. Truly spoken, young sir, said Colonel Talbot. General Lee and General Grant together could hold this continent against the world, and now that we have quit killing one another, America is safe in their hands. Harry, do you think I've eaten too much? I wouldn't go beyond the exploits of a gentleman, but this food has a wonderful savor, and I can't say that I have dined before in months. Not at all, sir. You have just barely begun. As Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire pointed out, General Grant would be displeased if we didn't fully appreciate his hospitality and prove it by our deeds. Here are some sardines, sir. You haven't tasted them yet, but you'll find them wonderfully fine. Colonel Talbot took the sardines, and then he and Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire rose suddenly and simultaneously to their feet, a look of wonder and joy spreading over their faces. Is it really he? exclaimed Colonel Talbot. It's he and none other, said Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire. A tall, powerfully built, gray-haired man was coming toward them, his hands extended. Colonel Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire stepped forward, and each grasped a hand. Good old John! Why, John, it's worth a victory to shake your hand again. Leonidas, I've been inquiring an hour or two for you and Hector. John Carrington, you've fulfilled your promise and more. We always said at West Point that you become the greatest artilleryman in the world, and in this war you've proved it on fifty battlefields. We've often watched your work from the other side, and we've always admired the accuracy with which you sent the shells flying about us. It was wonderful, John, wonderful, and it did more than anything else to save the North from complete defeat. A smile passed over John Carrington's strong face, and he patted his old comrade on the shoulder. It's good to know, Leonidas, that neither you nor Hector has been killed, he said, and that we can dine together again. Truly, truly, John, sit down. It's the hospitality of your own general that you share when you join us. General Lee would never make terms with men like McClellan, Burnside, and Hooker. No, sir. He preferred to defeat them, much as it cost our Union in blood and treasure. But with a man of genius like General Grant, he could agree. Really great souls always recognize one another. Is it not so, John? Beyond a doubt, Leonidas. We fully admit the greatness and lofty character of General Lee, as you admit the greatness and humanity of General Grant. Our nation is proud to have produced two such men. I agree with you, John. All of us agree with you. The soldiers of General Lee's army, who are here today, will never dispute what you say. Now, fall on, and join us at this board which, though rustic, is indeed a most luxurious and festive one. As I remember at West Point, you were a first-class trencherman. And I am yet, said John Carrington as he took his share. They were joined a little while later by a gallant young southern colonel, Philip Sherburne, who had led in many a cavalry attack, and then the equally gallant northern colonel, Alan Hertford, came also, and as everybody was introduced to everybody else, the good feeling grew. At last, the hunger that had been increasing so long was satisfied. And as they leaned back, Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire turned to Julien de Langue. 
Julien, he said, take out your violin. There is no more fitting time than this to play. Julien, John is a young relative of mine from Louisiana who has a gift. He is a great musician who is going to become much greater. Perhaps it was wrong to let a lad of his genius enter this war, but at any rate he has survived it, and now he will show us what he can do. Delonguay, after modest deprecations, took out his violin and played. Upon his sensitive soul, the war had made such a deep impression that his spirit spoke through the instrument. He had never before played so well. His strings sang of the march, the camp of victory and defeat, and defeat and victory, and as he played, he became absorbed in his music. The people around him, although they were rapidly increasing in numbers, were not visible to him. Yet he played upon their hearts. There was not one among them who did not see visions and dream dreams as he listened. At last his bow turned into the old and ever young home sweet home. Mid pleasures and palaces, though we may roam, be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. An exile from home, splendor dazzles in vain. Oh, give me my lowly thatched cottage again. Into the song he poured all his skill and all his heart, and as he played he saw the house in which he was born on the far Louisiana plantation. And those who listened saw also, in spirit, the homes which many of them had not seen, in fact, for four years. Stern souls were softened, and water rose to the eyes which had looked fearlessly and so often upon the charging bayonets of the foe. He stopped suddenly and put away his violin. There was a hush, and then a long roll of applause, not loud, but very deep. "'I hear Pendleton calling,' said Harry to Dick. "'So do I,' said Dick. "'I wonder what they're doing there. "'Have you heard from your father?' "'Not for several months. "'I think he's in North Carolina with Johnson, "'and I mean to go home that way. "'I have a good horse, and he'll carry me through the mountains. "'I think I'll find father there. "'An hour or two ago, Dick, I felt like a man, and I was a man. "'But since Delonguay played, I've become a boy again, "'and I'm longing for Pendleton and its green hills "'and the little river in which we used to swim. "'So am I, Harry.' and it's likely that I'll go with you. The war is over, and I can get leave at once. I want to see my mother. They stayed together until night came over Appomattox and its famous apple tree, and a few days later Harry Kenton was ready to start on horseback for Kentucky. But he was far from being alone. The two colonels, St. Clair, Langdon, Dick, DeLongay, Colonel Winchester, and Sergeant Whitley were to ride with him. Warner was to go north, and Pennington west, as soon as they were mustered out. Dick wrung their hands. "'Good-bye, George. Good-bye, Frank. Old comrades,' he said. "'But remember that we are to see a good deal of one another all through our lives, "'which I can reduce to a mathematical problem and demonstrate by means of my little algebra here,' said Warner, "'fumbling for his book to hide his emotion. "'I may come through Kentucky to see you and Harry,' said Pennington, "'when I start back to Nebraska.' "'Be sure to come,' said Dick with enthusiasm, "'and remember that the latch string is hanging out on both doors.' "'Then, carrying their arms, "'and well equipped with ammunition, food, and blankets, "'the little party rode away. "'They knew that the mountains were still extremely unsettled, "'much infested by gorillas, "'but they believed themselves strong enough to deal with any difficulty, "'and as the April country was fair and green, "'their hearts, despite everything, were light.' 